Christians who care about being accurate to what the Bible really teaches recognize that there are some passages in the Scriptures that are so plain and so clear that to deny what the passage teaches is to deny what the Bible teaches and what God has given to us as His children to understand. Regardless of how many men may deny it, regardless of how many conflicting views some may have, regardless of if they see it in a different way, to deny these passages is to deny what God teaches. When interpreting the Bible, it is always safe to go with the clear, unambiguous, plain teaching of even one verse than the speculation that men may have about a doctrine or a teaching from all different kinds of places. If that verse is clear, whatever else men may see doesn't matter. In fact, let's take a look at one of these cases. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. I would rather build my theology around the clear teaching of a passage than listen to all the various speculations of men. The Bible cannot contradict itself. The Bible does not contradict itself. And so if there is a passage that says something so clearly, and men deny that, and come up with some other way or some other meaning, they are calling the Bible erroneous. And that cannot be. Now we have here in Matthew chapter 1 the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus. In verse 18 it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so here's the teaching. She was a virgin. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. That is clear and unambiguous. She had never had relations with a man, and she was with child. In fact, if you look over to the last two verses of chapter 1, Joseph was told, of course, as you know, in a dream that this was by the Holy Spirit, he awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and they called his name Jesus. She was a virgin. Now, men come along, even some who claim to be theologians, teachers of religion, in universities and seminaries. And they say, well, we know. 
that a virgin birth is impossible. It cannot happen. So, this is a metaphor. This is a picture of some other uh, hidden meaning. It's, it's all good to teach us of faith and everything, but virgin birth is impossible. So this is like a picture or a metaphor. And some of you may know that there are multitudes of people who claim to be Christians who deny some of the key tenets of the faith. The miracles are impossible, they say, but we still believe in Jesus. So there couldn't be a virgin birth. And there couldn't be Jesus raising anybody from the dead. And he himself didn't physically be, uh, wasn't physically raised from the dead. That can't happen. But we still believe. So the question comes down to this. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe these so-called theologians who say, well, the virgin birth, you know, that's just a metaphor or a picture. Or are you going to believe what the Bible says? That's the issue. That's the question. And as for me, I believe the Bible. I believe what the Bible teaches. I believe what Scripture tells us about Jesus and the fact that He was indeed born of a virgin. It's what the Bible tells us. And if you know theology, it was absolutely necessary for your redemption. Now take that same understanding, that same conviction, that same passion, and let's apply it to another doctrine the doctrine of baptism. Turn in your Bibles now to chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, in the text that we have been studying in Matthew 28, in verse 19, says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. I'm sure that there are many Baptists who don't even know why they're Baptists. They don't know why they do what they do. They usually have a baptistry back here somewhere behind the pulpit area. It's raised up so you can all see it. And every once in a while, the preacher goes in there and dunks somebody in a tank. And there are a lot of people who go to the churches like that, and they may not even realize why they do it. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know why we do what we do. So right here in the midst of our study, the ongoing work of Christ, we find our Lord teaching about baptism. And as you know, baptism is disputed in our day. Some teach you should baptize children, babies. Some say you should baptize adults, believers. Some say that you should baptize by sprinkling. Others say you should baptize by putting them under the water and raising them up again, which is known as immersion. This is part of what Jesus taught His disciples following His resurrection from the dead, but prior to His ascension into heaven. He's giving them the instructions for what the church is going to do, for what the church is supposed to do, 
for what the church is supposed to be like. And so we have here the words of the scripture and the words of our Lord as he addressed them on the mount following his resurrection. We've already seen what he said to uh, Peter, particularly as we looked at his appearance by the shore of Tiberias. We saw what he said to the Apostle Paul and how Paul explained his appearances there in 1 Corinthians 15. But here on the mount, we've seen some wonderful doctrine, so we've been spending a little more time. And I have to begin again with what he says in verse 18 as he says, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. He's the all-powerful, all-sovereign God. He's just been raised from the dead and stands before his disciples and shows them that he's alive and says, I am the one who is sovereign and in power. In light of that, verse 19, go, therefore, make disciples. And we saw what it means to make disciples. That you bring the word of God, the truth of God. And God uses that to save men. So he's talking about, yes, making converts, but also making sure that they are taught. Even as he says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Yes, they will be saved, converts, but teach them. See that they are brought to a maturity in Christ. That's what the church's job is to do. It's what a pastor's job is to do. And what Jesus says in this text is make disciples. But then we come to this little thing he says, and baptize them. And this is the controversy. His instructions to a baptizing church. Who should the church baptize? How should the church baptize them? I mentioned last week that the Roman Catholic Church baptized me when I was a little baby. And according to their mindset and their thinking, that made me a Christian. Made me a part of the church. That because they sprinkled me with some water, I was saved. Presbyterians believe that you baptize children by sprinkling them with water. They don't believe or teach that it saves them, but they do teach that it makes them, as they call them, covenant children. And gives them a a good start, I guess. All your children should have that good start. I don't downplay that whatsoever. We have a dedication of children. But they teach that that's what baptism is. A sprinkling of your children, making them covenant children children as a symbol of the Abrahamic covenant was so baptism now is but other churches believe that you baptize disciples believers and they're the ones that are to be baptized so we looked at the scriptures and we have these two headings the man and the method and we only got to the man last week that one who should be baptized and we pointed to the fact that this text given by our Lord Jesus, is one of those texts. It is clear. It is plain. It is unambiguous. He says, make disciples in all nations and baptize them. Not baptize the nation, baptize the disciple. It's clear. It's plain. 
It's as plain as what we saw in Matthew chapter 1 regarding the virgin birth. This text is not able to be taken any other way, linguistically or theologically. We are to baptize disciples. It is what our Lord taught. That is the text. The then, if you look at verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The them connects back to disciples. It's not arguable. It is what the text teaches. So we are to make disciples, train them, teach them, educate them in the things of Christ. The power of God and the Holy Spirit takes that word, opens their hearts, causes them to believe, and they're saved, and then you baptize them. And then you continue to teach them. That's what he says in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. This is what our Lord teaches. No matter what some may say, babies are not disciples. No matter what they say, a nine or an eight day old or a week old or a two month old baby is not a disciple. We have a one year old that I spent some time with yesterday in the back. And I will guarantee you that that little girl has no clue as to what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Not yet. She will. But you ask her right now, and you know what she will say to you? (laughs) She is not a disciple. No baby is capable of being taught. And that's what Jesus said. Make disciples. And the word disciple means to educate, to teach. And then he goes in verse 20, teaching them. These are the ones that are to be baptized. Not little babies. Not little children. They know nothing of the gospel. They know nothing of Jesus and his work. Furthermore, nowhere do we find in the Bible Jesus teaching that you should baptize babies. Nowhere. He says baptize disciples. Nowhere does he say baptize babies. Nowhere does he say that baptizing babies makes them saved. Never do you find that in the scripture. That baptizing babies makes them saved. It is not taught, and in fact it is contradictory to what Jesus did teach. As he went out and preached and called on men to repent from their sins and turn from their wicked ways and be saved. Now, let me go do that to Rebecca. You know what she will say? Baptize those who have been taught the scriptures and that the Holy Spirit has taken the truth of God's word and opened their hearts. 
saving them by His grace. The church is not to be baptizing babies. It is contrary to what our Lord taught. The clear teaching of Jesus here is you make disciples and you baptize them. That is why we are Baptists. Because that's what Jesus taught the church to do. That's what Jesus said the church should do. He's telling his apostles, look, here I am, raised from the dead. I am the sovereign, all-powerful king of heaven and earth. And here's what you need to do. Take everything you've heard from me, everything you've seen me do, all the teaching that you have heard from me over the last three years. Take the fact that I am raised from the dead, standing right in front of you, alive. Take all of this that you have learned. Take the scriptures. Take the truth. Go. Call on men to repent. Call on men to be saved. And when they are saved, disciple them. Teach them and baptize them. That's why we baptize believers, not babies. Because it's what Jesus taught the church to do. That's why I'm a Baptist. I was raised in a church, as I mentioned, a group. It's not really a church. It's a world religion that teaches that you should baptize babies. And I have many friends and many good men that I admire that teach that you should baptize babies. But I don't believe them. I believe Jesus. I believe what he says. I take it as, at his word. We baptize believers. That's why Spurgeon was a, was a Baptist. Spurgeon was a Baptist. Even though his family was Presbyterian, he was a Baptist. Because he believed what Jesus taught. Now, it is an effort to be faithful and honest to what the Bible teaches. That's all. Simple. Faithful to what Jesus clearly taught. That they are to be baptized, disciples are to be baptized, and as we will see in the following weeks, in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Those who teach that baptism is a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant may not realize that God had not revealed Himself as the Trinity yet to Abraham. It's just not right. It's not biblical. We're not to be baptizing babies. It is not a carrying on of the Abrahamic covenant. So, that's the answer to the first question. Who should be baptized? Believers. Disciples. Those who have been saved by the grace of God. Now, let's look at the second question. Who should be baptized? How should they be baptized? The man, disciple. The method, how should they be baptized? As you know, and as I've mentioned, those who believe in baby baptism, infant baptism, believe in sprinkling. They take a little water and they sprinkle it over the head of the child. There's usually a basin or a bin in the front of the church and they take a little water, they take the baby and they sprinkle the baby over the head with some water, over the forehead usually. Some do it different ways, some just use kind of holy water and go like that. But they sprinkle, that's what they hold to, that's what they do. On the other hand, those who believe in baptizing believers believe 
in immersion, putting them under the water and having them raised up again out of the water. That's immersion. Now, once again, I say, wouldn't it be good to have a text that kind of tells you which way you should do it? Wouldn't it be good to have a passage in the Bible that tells you whether it's supposed to be by sprinkling or immersion? Well, we do. And guess what? It's the same text. Jesus said, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And why do I say it's the same text? Because that's the word Jesus uses. The word that Jesus uses in this text is baptizo. What does it mean? It does not mean sprinkle. It means to immerse, to submerge even. Because we let them come up. We don't just put them under, we let them come up. But the word baptizo means to submerge, to put under water, not sprinkle. Not pour water over the head. Put under water. Why do you think Baptists baptize this way? Because that's what the word means. Why are we called Baptists? Because we baptize people under water and bring them up. Because that's what the word means. We're called Baptists. Presbyterians should be called sprinklers. We're called Baptists because we believe in baptizing and that's what the word means. To put under water. That's why we baptize the way we do because that's what the word means. Baptism is to be by immersion because that's what Jesus said. That's the word he chose. He could have chosen a Greek word that meant throw a little water on him, sprinkle him over the head. But he used the word baptize, baptizo. You notice it's transliteration. Because, you know, we just say, we say it so often, we don't think about it, but it's a Greek word, really. And that's what the Greek word means, put under water. Now, I understand And I just want to say this to make sure you all know my heart. That there are indeed times when that's not physically possible. There are sometimes elderly and sometimes infirm people who cannot physically go underwater that way. We had one in our congregation some years ago. Had an absolute dreadful fear of going underwater. She was a little older, and we could not baptize her that way. She was in the water, though. But we got her down pretty far, and then I sprinkled some water on her head. But she could not go under the water physically. And there are some who are too old to be able to get into a pool or into a baptistry, and God miraculously and wonderfully saves them. Or there are some who may be infirm or too feeble. I knew a man, and some of you knew him for years. His name was Johnny Faris. And he was on a pallet. He used to, I used to go to church with him. There was no way in the world he could go into a baptistry. He was totally crippled. 
We had another member of our church, Claire's daughter, who was totally incapacitated and unable to get into water. So, yes, we could, we could understand that and symbolize what it meant to go under the water and, and use water on her head. But normally, with everyone who is able and capable, we baptize believers by immersion. Because that's what the word means, to go under the water. But not only is it the word that Jesus used, it is how we see this word used in the Bible. I ask you to turn with me, if you would, please, back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Right now, I'm just looking at the word being used, okay? The baptism of John was not the complete baptism. And when there were many in in the uh, Bible who had only heard of the baptism of John, they were baptized that way. They were later baptized in Christ, which is the real baptism. But here we have the account of John the Baptist and what he was doing. And really what I want us to see more than anything else is just what he was doing. What he was doing. Here in Matthew chapter 3, look down to verse 6, as we see. Well, we'll back up to verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the districts around the Jordan. And there they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. It was not on the shore as he'd scoop out water and sprinkle them. He wasn't even in the village or in the town or in the backyard where he'd hit him with a hose. He was in the river. And those who were baptized went down into the river with him. If he was only sprinkling, why did they have to go down into the river? The clear picture and the clear understanding is what the word means. To go under the water. And that's what John was doing. Baptizing them in the Jordan River. That's the word. Now we go on a little bit and we see Jesus coming to be baptized by John, right here in the same text. By the way, Mark's gospel says that he baptized them into the Jordan River, into, immersed. But here we see in verse 13 now that Jesus comes and he comes to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to them, or said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. 
after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. This is the picture of Baptists baptizing. You go down into the water and you come up out of the water. You get the picture. You see what it's like. You understand that you've seen baptisms in the past. You may have even seen some movies depicting the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. I know a lot of them have him coming out and then John just sprinkles them. But the meaning of the word is to go under the water and then to come up again immediately. And I'm going to see, we're going to see in a few moments why it is done this way and the significance of it. But this is the word used here by our Lord, by Matthew in the gospel, that he came up out of the water after being baptized. So it is the meaning of the word that Jesus used. It is displayed so in the scripture as the word that Jesus used, but also it was the practice of the early church utilizing baptism this way, even as Jesus taught. For this, I ask you to turn to that passage we read a little while ago from the book of Acts and chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Here we have the account of Philip and his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Don't be put off too much by the term eunuch. It could just be translated man. But here is this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip meets. We'll start at verse 26. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is a desert road. So he got up and went. Now, people, there's the first lesson. If the angel of the Lord comes to you and says, get up and go, you go. Philip got up and went right away without hesitation. God was obviously using this man in a mighty way. He was a noted preacher. So Philip, a deacon in the church, goes down by the instruction of the Holy Spirit to this desert place. This was approximately 70 miles outside of Jerusalem, this road in Gaza that was, as the text says, a desert road. He got up and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, He was a high-ranking official in Ethiopia. Now, yes, people understand the Ethiopians were, were black. They were Africans. And that's a wonderful testimony. Because the gospel is for all races, for all nations, for all men, for all women. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor free female, black or white or red or yellow. In Christ. And this is a powerful testimony to that. He is sent by the Holy Spirit to meet this black man, an official from Ethiopia, 
to give him the truth. And you know God doesn't send him there for nothing. He sends him there to miraculously and wonderfully save this man. And what does he do? Well, we'll see what he does. So Philip comes and goes and meets this Ethiopian eunuch who was uh, working for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasury. So he was kind of wealthy, had great power. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Imagine that. Here was a man who had heard about the Jews and their great religion in Ethiopia. And he went there to worship and to learn of the God of Israel. We know that because he's reading the book of Isaiah. And that's what we find in the text. He was returning from worship, sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. you think that was by accident? Or do you think it was the kind providence of God, the supernatural providence of God leading this man, opening, dealing with his heart and dealing with his mind from the scriptures, the truth. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip runs up and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And what does he say? Do you know what you're reading there, buddy? Hey, I see you've got a Bible there. Do you know what it says? That's a good way to talk to somebody. I see you have a Bible on your coffee table. It has a lot of dust on it. But do you know what it says inside? Because you find that in a lot of people's homes. They have a Bible on the coffee At least they used to. They have a Bible on their coffee table or something like that. Hey, do you know? Do you know what that says? Do you know what that teaches? Do you know what God says? That's God's word. Do you know what it says? And that's what Philip said. Do you know what you're reading? You know what you're reading in that, in that book of Isaiah? He goes up to him and he says, uh, 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 Do you know what that is that you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, Well, well how can I unless someone guides me? <laughs> I'm ready now. There's my in, right? I mean, that's it. I'm, how can I tell unless somebody guides me? Well, here I am. I will guide you. And Philip said to him, and he came up and he sat down with him. And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Now this is the passage of scripture that he was reading from Isaiah. Speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus. Speaking about what Jesus did in his sacrificial death on the cross. So the Ethiopian eunuch says, who's he talking about? Himself or another? In other words, I'm reading Isaiah... Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And Philip, trying to hold back a grin, no doubt. Well, let me tell you who he's talking about. 
And the text tells us, he opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Preached. Sometimes you have small congregations, right? But you still preach Jesus. Now this Ethiopian eunuch was obviously not alone. He would not have been traveling by himself. He had servants with him there, perhaps following the chariot or around it. And they obviously no doubt heard what Philip said, but he focused on the Ethiopian eunuch and beginning in this scripture, he preached Jesus. So let me tell you kids a little bit about this. You see, in the Old Testament, the Bible prophesied that there would be this one who would come. And he would bear the burden of sins to the cross. That he would give his life on the cross for many. And by his stripes, his sufferings, his crucifixion, you are healed. You are saved. That's what God prophesied in the Old Testament. And along comes Jesus, born of a virgin, without the taint of Adam's sin, who lives a spotless, sinless life, and then is falsely condemned and convicted to the cross. And he goes willingly on the cross where his wrists are pierced and his feet are pierced as he's nailed to the cross and he's raised up before men and gives his life that you would be saved. By his stripes you are healed. Isaiah taught it, Jesus fulfilled it. Philip preached Jesus Christ to this Ethiopian eunuch. He preached Christ, and what happened? He was saved. God opened his heart. This is new life. This is greater works. Shall you do? Jesus taught. New life by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the word, the scriptures in Isaiah, the preaching of Christ by Philip, piercing his heart and saving this man, saving this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, verse 36, as they went along the road, which means that they were obviously just going as Philip was preaching, Probably at least an hour, at least. Probably as Philip was preaching, the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now let me ask you a question. His ride is through the desert. He's on a chariot. He's not in a Maserati. It would have taken a long time days for this trip. Do you suppose he had a canteen? 
Do you suppose he had a bag, as their canteens, of water for this trip? I guarantee you that chariot had a cup holder. And he had that right there to drink on the way. Why couldn't Philip have just sprinkled him? But no, they came to water. Look, here is water. An oasis by the side of that desert road. What prevents me from being baptized? Now what does Philip do? And admittedly, this text is not included in some of the ancient manuscripts, but it is here. Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What is this Ethiopian eunuch? A disciple. What was Philip doing? Discipling him. Using the word of God. Preaching to him from the word of God that Christ is the Son of God and gave his life. Preaching from the scriptures. Bringing the word of what did Jesus say? It is truth that sets men free. And who do you baptize? People who believe. Disciples. So what does Philip say? Do you truly believe? And if so, you can be baptized. And he said, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip as well as the Ethiopian, as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him there. Didn't use the water jug. Took him down into the oasis pool of water and baptized him there. You ever stop to think, what did the other people with the Ethiopian eunuch think? Plus, you ever go to a rest stop along I-75 or the turnpike? How many people are there? Lots of people. Lots and lots of people. Here's the, here's the watering hole for your horses, for your camels, for yourself. There were a lot of people there. What a testimony that Philip and this Ethiopian black man get down into this water and Philip baptizes him. And he comes up out of the water, a new man, a new creature in Christ. What a picture, what a testimony. And that's exactly what baptism is supposed to be. A testimony to the world of what God has done in my heart. A testimony to the church, a testimony to your family, a testimony to all who see. I'll invite my neighbors. A testimony to what Jesus does in the hearts and lives of men. You see, baptism is an outward outward symbol of an inward reality. He was already saved. The baptism showed the world. Baptism doesn't save you, but it shows the world what has already happened in your heart. And that's exactly what took place here with Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Notice it even says in verse 39, when they came up out 
of the water. Baptism, baptizo, is to go down into the water. And you come up out of the water. This was the practice shown in the early church. It was the practice even shown in the historic church, going down into the water and coming up again. I show you this from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But do you see the picture that is being given here? We have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. We have this picture of being dead to sin, going down into the water, and then being raised to new life, coming up again out of the water. This is the picture that Paul is painting here. Buried through baptism into death, and raised from dead to glory in our Salvation in Christ. Baptism is a picture of being dead to sin and raised to new life. You go down into the grave, down into the water, and raised again to new life in Christ. How is that possible with sprinkling? It is not possible to babies it is not possible by sprinkling it is a picture of new life in Christ that only a disciple will know a saved man or woman will know and this picture is only possible through immersion not sprinkling I close by pointing out to you That it was indeed the word of Jesus. It is the word used in the New Testament. It was the practice of the early church in the New Testament. And also it was the historical practice of the church for the first three, almost four centuries. For almost 400 years, the early church baptized by immersion. It is what the church did. Why? Why? Because it is what Jesus said to do. 
If you look again in our text, in Matthew 28, He's teaching the church, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And the word He's using is to put them under the water and to bring them up to new life. So the early church, for almost 400 years, baptized by immersion. Put that in perspective, how old is America? 240 years this last 4th of July. So for almost twice that amount of time, that's the way the church baptized. You know what happened then? Some poor theologians got into the church of Rome and brought into the church of Rome paedo-baptism. And that's what changed it in the late 3rd century. But this is what the church did because this is what Jesus said to do. And for me, I can do no other. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus teaches. And it's such a beautiful picture of dying to sin and being raised to new life. This is biblical. And so many people will go, oh, but that's, that's not the way my church does it. That, that's not the way we do it. I, I was baptized as a baby. That's the way my church was. That, that's what we always believed. What matters is what Jesus says. Not what your church teaches. Not what a theologian teaches. Not what your History in your church teaches, your tradition in your church teaches. What matters is what the Bible teaches and what Jesus teaches. And Jesus says, make disciples, baptize them. Not take babies and baptize them. Make disciples and baptize them. And that's why we do. Because that's what Jesus said. Amen? Let's pray.